Hello and welcome to MindQuest. I am your host, Miguel Morales, and this is Mission Control Center. Hello and welcome one more week to Mission Control Center, your one-stop shop for IT careers from recruitment advice. This week we interview Chris Crowley, a U.S.-based veteran cybersecurity expert specializing in security operations centers, or SOCs. Chris works as an independent consultant through his company, Montans, has a SOC class, and is a SANS Institute senior instructor. He recently sat down with us to discuss how he carved his career path in cybersecurity and share some insights into what makes a state-of-the-art SOC. As always, you can read the full interview and access our latest career resources by visiting mindquest.io slash blog. But without further delay, let's welcome Chris. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Welcome to Mission Control Center. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Let's start from the beginning. How did you get started in cybersecurity? I started working in technology when I was 15 years old, um, which was 1988, <laughs> to put in perspective. So uh, basically, I got hired. Actually, I mean, that was my first job where I actually went into an office. Um, I did a bunch of stuff off of my computer, sort of like independently. I was doing mail merges for one of my mom's friends in order to like send out letters advertising her business. So like that was kind of the earlier stuff. But when I got a job, they hired me to basically come in and do reel to reel backups where literally they needed somebody to actually put the tapes on and spin them up and get going. So that's the kind of stuff that I had started doing in technology. Fast forward much later uh, to cybersecurity entry. Um, I actually uh, I went to to undergraduate for molecular biology because I thought I was going into you know medicine and research wow. science to, and stuff like that. And then decided after I did basically a full um, undergraduate degree in that that I didn't really want to do that for work anymore. I'd worked in labs and a bunch of stuff. Uh, this great microscopy suite that was really a lot of fun. But I was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And I had always, always worked in computers. So it was actually sort of an easy switch for me then to, to just um, basically do another undergraduate on in computer information systems in order to kind of have that credentialing. So I did that and I started working in, you know, um, operations, IT operations. You know, this was in the, the mid to late 90s. And then, you know, in the 2000 timeframe, where there wasn't a lot of cybersecurity focus, things started going wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we had stuff where I was working at Tulane University at the time, like the FBI showed up. So they show up, they're like, you have to take all these computers offline. We had problems with spam. Literally, prior to that, there wasn't really a problem with spam on email. I had stuff where, you know, computer systems had gotten compromised. I dealt with Blaster and Nachi, which um, SQL slammers, like some of the some of these early worms that we just weren't ready for. And it just destroyed the networks. It was crashing all the network switches because it was so much volume of stuff. So that's kind of how I got started in cyber. It was just like I was the IT operations person and, and we had cyber problems. So I was like, well, you have to deal with it. And it was a struggle. It was a huge struggle initially because it was just like there wasn't a lot of information. I mean, now you can go Google cybersecurity, but in, you know, 2002, 2003, <laughs> they're like, what the hell's going on? You know, you'd have to try to like figure out where stuff was. And how did you eventually become the independent cybersecurity expert that you are today? 
So a major turning point, not even turning point, but just major change happened for me personally in 2005. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. I was living in New Orleans at the time. My house flooded. Tulane University was dramatically impacted by this. And so I went through this big sort of like disaster recovery experience, which 2005, again, like I had a I had a Nokia like handheld that when we wanted to send text messages, it was like you had to press the, you know, the two button three times in order to get the C character. You know what I mean? So it's like kind of a different landscape in terms of smartphones and connectivity and stuff then. And I ended up evacuating and then uh, at that point moving up to Washington, D.C. And I had been doing a bunch of cyber stuff at that point and I, I knew that that was a direction that I was going. But when I came up to Washington, D.C., it kind of changed things. I started working at U.S. government agencies and, and working in cyber programs there. Also, around the same time, I started teaching for SANS Institute. And then what happened was as I was teaching for SANS and doing this stuff, I, I kind of had this moment where I was like, OK, if I want to continue along this path, it would probably be better for me to exit employment. And this was not really ever something that I had planned to do in my career, right? I, I hadn't planned to go into business. I hadn't planned to, you know, to go out on my own. But that's what ended up happening, mostly because I couldn't balance the full-time job plus the training stuff, plus the opportunities that I had for some other things. And so when I left full-time employment, I kind of joke about it, but I had three part-time jobs that were about 50% of like what a normal, you know, workday would be because I was afraid. I wasn't certain. I didn't know how to do it. And I ended up for the first three years just feeling completely overwhelmed and hustling and doing all the things that were necessary. And I wasn't even really chasing customers. It's just that I had like three contracts that I was working on. Since then, I've continued to do that. And I think I've gotten better. I still work about, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, but it's just like kind of spread out. And it's a little bit more comfortable for me. So that's my career in a nutshell <laughs> as to where I am now. And then I have my company, Montance, that I do consulting through. And I have my SOC class that I do training for, for security operations stuff. I still teach through SANS Institute. And I just do a lot of, I get an opportunity to, to do a lot of things. What are you working on these days? Right now I'm working on, with a managed security service provider out of uh, the Middle East. I'm working with uh, two large financial services companies to do maturity assessments or tabletops for their sort of capabilities. It's it's really interesting for me, and it's it's become phenomenal. It just it was uncertain <laughs> to, to get here, and um, of course it continues to be a little bit uncertain. Always, where's the next where's the next gig? <laughs> you mentioned juggling all these part time gigs as you exited permanent employment. What key learnings about yourself and the way you work have you gotten out of your transition into independent work? I want to say yes to everything. I really do. People ask for help. People want me to do engagements and so on. And I want to say yes all the time. And the problem is that I can't do that. And I have to pick which things I will actually engage on that will allow me to do a good job. And you probably have gathered this already, but I'm the sort of person who wants to do all the different things. <laughs> I'm not a specialist. I'm very much of a generalist. So it's been hard for me, in addition to the say yes to everything, it's been hard for me to allow delegation to other people. It's strange because when I work in teams where I'm the, you know, sort of the team lead, I tend to be really good at delegating. 
but when it comes to my style, you know, when it's more, when I feel like I, it's more of a reflection on me, it's harder for me to actually delegate that. So those have been three specific things that I've adjusted in my approach. Say no to stuff or be more diligent in choosing. Make sure that I am working in teams rather than trying to do everything, you know, on my own. And then also looking for better ways to delegate that to other people. Where do you draw the line between a junior cybersecurity professional and a senior one? I like the terminology of junior, senior I'm much better than the tier one, tier two, tier three kind of stuff. And to draw the distinction for people, the way that I explain it is this. A senior level person would be capable in making a decision and providing information, weighing all of the appropriate information that might be available. So a senior level person should know that they know, need to go get more business context. A senior level person needs to, you know, should know that they need to be aware of other people who are in the organization who might be affected by a cyber-based decision and get their buy-in or, you know, weigh-in or whatever. So the senior level, in my mind, is someone who's capable of making an informed and coherent decision weighing all possible materials, data, evidence, opinions. I don't think that I can expect a junior level person to have the appropriate level of awareness and skills and um, social interaction and acumen on the details to be able to come up with that same complicated synthesis and then provide a defendable opinion. Right. And, and I mean, junior level staff will try to do something like that, but they did, they simply lack the experience and the capability and the technical acumen to come up with the best opinion. What makes a state of the art stock? Anytime I start talking about security operations centers, I fall back onto the we've got inputs, we've got people, we've got procedures to work through, we've got technology uh, to work with. And then the, there are outputs, things that come out from the SOC that are work products. So if I'm thinking about these five things in order to depict what a security operations center is, I'm going to hit on a couple of things that become more of a modern SOC. So what is the thing that's right now that from an input that you would be capable of? One aspect of that would be the ability to absorb a tremendous amount of data at speed and have that be something that is constantly changing. The instrumentation across every different type of system with effective ingestion, I think, is a, a hallmark of the state-of-the-art SOC. Because older SOCs, what you would get was like, okay, well, we need to write the connector for that and we need to hire professional services to do that and I can't take the data in from that system. You, you know what I mean? So it's like state-of-the-art is like, that's data, give it to me, we'll figure it out, we'll consistently... Uh, be able to uh, to absorb that. I would also say in state of the art, you potentially also have the way to absorb historically, even after the things have happened, if you can go back in time for absorption. And this, this is relevant both to threat intelligence as well as uh, logging or other artifacts. And then that all kind of gets synthesized into the picture of what you're doing. For the people, you tend to have people who have skills and capabilities. The modern SOC is a learning SOC. The modern SOC is not a help desk. 
And I, again, like I, I don't want to disparage the help desk, but the idea of a help desk is basically we tend to have given things that are within our scope. Here's what we do. Here's what we work on. If you're part of this, you meet this criteria. We run it through things and we assign it to the right people. Modern SOC, in in my opinion, handles uncertainty on behalf of the organization. It handles the unprecedented. Like I can't write, <laughs> you know, like a, a routine for something that we haven't anticipated for the organization. I mean, we can say we'll handle it, but then we're going to figure out on the fly what to what to do. And the modern SOC embraces that with their staff. The state of the art capability is we'll deal with it. <laughs> okay. And and we'll deal with it with a degree of of grace. And when I say that that term of the grace, it's like it's not going to be like highly polished the first time through, but it's also not going to be crushing where people are quitting in the midst of it. <laughs> Because that that happens sometimes to people. From a procedural aspect, we have this flexible deployment of our staff. We have the ability to do a lot of things quickly and efficiently, but we also have adaptability and uh, thinking and business relevance in our procedures. In terms of technology, I'll name a couple of technologies, but I don't want to limit it to these. But these are things that if if you, as an example, if you don't have a SOAR, and you aren't implementing SOAR, I'm kind of like, okay, well, you're behind the curve. That's the first one that right now is a technology that a lot of people are embracing. If you don't have a SOAR technology, but you've written all of your own custom PowerShell or Python or whatever in order to do stuff, I still think that counts for SOAR if you've been writing it on your own for an extended period of time. But that notion of effective automation is really important for for current state-of-the-art capability. So I think about SOAR. I think about, of course, an effective SIM for the correlation of information. I think about threat intelligence and gestion and correlation for informing the analysts. And this sort of dips back into the procedural aspect, but it also is relevant to technology. It is I see in a state-of-the-art SOC the pairing of use case development and threat hunting. And by the way, I gave a talk at RSA earlier this year where I went through and listed out my technology taxonomy. And it basically is like every single thing that I could think of that a security operations center probably needs. The PDF of it I have online, uh, mgt517.com slash SOC will take you to a Google Drive where I've just got this brain dump of (laughs) of resources that are in there. And then the last part is this notion of artifacts, right? So the fifth thing of like what makes a, a, you know, a state-of-the-art sock. In the artifacts that come out, it's more about portals, automatic notifications, directly notifying the constituents as well as the affected system owners and responsible parties with, with minimal human action in order to do that. The analyst is doing the analyst work the analyst is interacting with some form of a system that's collecting that information and the system is notifying people rather than the analyst copy pasting into a Word document, printing it to a PDF and sending that out. And I have no problem with collecting reporting into uh, into a document, but at the same time, we already have that data in our various systems. Why aren't we just programming them to do what computers do well, which is 
you know, hit the hit the bits that need to be hit and distribute that information appropriately. So it's very much more portal driven and and constituent focused than here. Let's, you know, encrypt this uh, encrypt this report. Now, it's hard to get there, but I think that that's a hallmark of the current state of the art. Thank you, Chris. Best of luck. And until next time. And now this is what happened in technology this week. Ryan Abbott, a professor at the University of Surrey, had launched a series of patent requests for inventions made by Davos, an artificial intelligence created by Dr. Stephen Taylor. The applications were denied, citing the fact that an AI could not legally be considered an inventor. But an Australian federal judge has forced a country's patent commission to reconsider Taylor's application, ruling that he could hold the patents while listing Davos as the inventor. The decision effectively recognizes AI systems as potential inventors and sets an important precedent for establishing ownership of intellectual property whenever artificial intelligence is involved. And moving on to other news, IT leaders, and all IT workers for that matter, have been vital to business resilience and recovery during lockdown and beyond. But have they been given all the credit they deserve? According to a new survey of European IT leaders conducted by Pure Storage, more than half of tech leaders feel that their efforts and hard work have not been acknowledged by the company's management. Furthermore, IT teams are still suffering from conflicting interests within their organization and are often forced to act reactively as opposed to proactively improving operational efficiencies and building a competitive advantage. And finally, with all the UFO talk going on these days, the idea of looking up to the skies in search of extraterrestrial life is becoming more of a real serious thing than just a topic reserved to late-night History Channel documentaries. In the midst of all this alien frenzy, the SETI Institute and a Harvard University astronomer have launched a new initiative to scout the galaxy in the hopes of finding signs of extraterrestrial technology. The Galileo Project, as the initiative is called, will use advanced AI and a network of telescopes, detector arrays, and cameras to check for anomalies and tell UFOs apart from man-made and natural phenomena. And that's all for this week. Make sure to follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn at MindQuest Talent and on Twitter at MindQuesting. Thank you for listening and until next time.